Wait, um, Natalie and I are recording our podcast right now. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. You're on speakerphone. What's your favorite part of Fantasia, Mom? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess the hippos. Uh-huh. I'm doing a whole section on the hippo. Okay. What was your least favorite part of Fantasia? No, thanks. <laughs> Watching it. Hey, welcome to another episode of Wolf Disney. I am Natalie. And I'm Sarah. And we are two sisters who grew up with very little Disney knowledge and experience. Um, And so we are in the journey of watching the Disney feature films in chronological order. Um, Today, we are talking about Fantasia. All right, so for our icebreaker, um, this, Natalie and I did this last week, so we're going to see how you guys do. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> can you make an acrostic, so that's like taking your name and the first letter, or the letter, anyways, can you name a Disney character for every letter in your name? Oh. Okay, I think I can do this. So Frollo... Remy, Eve, someone that starts with a D. Um, An elephant. Oh, Dumbo. Yeah, Dumbo. (laughs) Um, I have a second D. (laughs) Two of the dwarves. Oh, that's right. Doc. And is there anyone with a what? Oh, Isma. There we go. Oh, Ooh, nice. One. So I truly did not recognize the first three characters you said. Uh-uh. I did either. Uh, so Frollo, I thought that that was like your new nickname. No. <laughs> Frollo is the name of the evil guy from The Hunchback of Notre oh. Dame. Oh. Lord Frollo. And then Remy is the rat from Ratatouille. Oh. And then Eve is the white robot from Wally. Yeah, I knew that. Okay. Okay, Alex. Okay. You got three letters. Make it work. Four. (laughs) Anna. You seemed like you knew it. You just knew your first one, right? (laughs) Um, I'm just ready for him to get to X. Let's see what we get. (laughs) Oh. oh. Do you guys know an L? (laughs) LeFou from Beauty E will do. Don't you steal E? You need a new person. Isn't one of the characters from Hunchback an E? Mm hmm. Esmeralda. I knew that. And for X, <clears throat> I'm going to just Google that. Xerxes from the TV series Aladdin. <laughs> oh my goodness. There's literally... Um, there's an- also XR Buzz Lightyear Star Command. Great. I learned something today. See, it's educational for everyone. It is. <laughs> it's like a Disney character review. Well done, guys. Well done. So these are our friends, Freddie and Alex. Um, and we kind of just kind of jumped into acrostics, I just realized. Um, they were spelling <laughs> their names, Freddie and Alex. Yes. Um, 
I, you guys clearly know more about Disney already than the two of us do, um, based on the characters that you pulled out. Um, what's y'all's favorite Disney movies? Oh, that's such a hard question. I would say my favorite, like, more traditional one is Mulan. Um, and then I would say for new ones is Moana. Sheikah. Yeah, I love Moana. Um, I've seen that one. Natalie has not seen that one. You haven't seen Moana? Yeah. It's beautiful. It's a you gorgeous see Mona movie. Girl. <laughs> uh, that's a tough question for me. I think in terms of like newer, newer movies, I really like um, Onward, mm. the, the new film that just came out. But I also really like um, Big Hero 6. A lot of family themes. Right, I love those. In terms of like old school Disney, I think this is technically Disney. There's this Disney film that I used to watch, or we would watch in elementary school in the music class, like general music. And it was like, I think it was Peter and the, like Peter and Wolf was the music in it. But I think that was a Disney, like short or Disney yeah. film. Um, so will you guys give the listeners, um, what you're up to and also like more specifically your musical backgrounds? Okay, I'll start. Okay. So from the beginning, um, like from my childhood, I always really loved making music in some way. Like I would be knocking on a piano somewhere and like pretending to like play melodies or trying to write song lyrics when I was a little kid. And then when I got to middle school, I picked percussion and I was, I've been a percussionist. And so I, I took that out through high school. I learned that I love to compose, um, that I just loved everything about music. So when I went to college, I decided I want to be a music educator. So I majored in music education and um, got really into every single possible aspect of music. So I loved choral music and I loved instrumental music and I loved contemporary acapella and I loved arranging and composing and directing and music theory and I loved it all. And so I've been a high school music teacher for the last seven years. This is year seven wow. of high school teaching. That um, does not sound possible to me. Yep, seven years of being a high school band director. Um, and I've taught band, orchestra, chorus, music theory. I taught contemporary acapella. I teach a course on music psychology um, right now because I also teach psychology, um, like AP psychology, which is another passion of mine. So yeah, that's where I am with music. Um, so for me, I think, as I'm like thinking about it now, I think growing up a big part of music for me was like embodying music. And so my grandma always likes to tell the story that when I was like three or four, whenever The Lion King came out, <laughs> I, that was like all I would do is I would watch The Lion King and I would sing every song and I would dance around the house and live my best life. And um, in thinking about kind of my progression, I think that is still holds true to this day. Like I love to embody music in ways, in any way that I can. So it's always been me trying to figure out how to do that. So like growing up, I did the music thing. So middle school, high school, did music. I picked saxophone as my instrument, which has now just evolved into a love of like woodwind instruments in general. And from there, instrumental music was like the gateway. And then that expanded in high school into more performing arts and the musical theater came into play. And so that was more like being able to embody songs and sing songs. And then I went to college and majored in music there as well. 
but also still found other outlets to embody music. So like I did acapella um, during my whole time there. I like sang in the Glee Club for like a real hot minute before I quit. And then I went and joined jazz vocal ensemble and did that. Um, and then joined a music fraternity where we sang all the time as well. So it was like all these different ways of being with music. Um, and then in my time in college, I majored in music therapy. And so now, now I'm doing that for, this is my seventh year doing that um, and being able to use music or work with music, I should say, and people in ways of promoting like overall wellness. And so I've been doing that with diff in different places and different ways, which has been really cool and awesome. And I'm like finishing up my master's now in music therapy and nice. trying, to work, trying to work towards that big old counseling licensure as well to make sure that anyone that cannot afford service can get service that is so important um so yeah that's kind of my my story very cool how have you seen musical ther musical therapy music therapy music therapy music therapy i knew that wasn't right how how have you seen that um help people I've seen it work in, a, in, in different ways. And even as working as a therapist from when I first started to now, like the way I view therapy is very different. So like in my first job, um, I worked with folks with autism and different dis uh, developmental disabilities. And their music was really like a tool to help um, promote normativity in, in a way or like normalizing or, um, or trying to like diminish the how prominent the disability was. And um, that is how I view it now as my reflection on it. I will always be grateful for it as my first job and opportunity. But even in that, like you could see folks that I worked with be so proud of themselves when they were able to do something for the first time, whether it was um, say a word for the first time, say their name or say a full sentence or say how they were feeling. I will still always remember like towards the end of my time there, I was working one of, one of my groups was in a elementary school classroom out in Orange County, out in good old Hillsboro area. And I was working with a group of boys and one little boy in particular had, speech was an issue for him, like saying words and forming words and forming sentences. And I had worked with him throughout my entire time there um, at the job. So about like four and a half years and with some time on and time off, because we, you know, we switched therapists here and again. But I had them at the end, and I was, and it was my last day there, and they knew that I was leaving. And um, we go around the room, and everyone says goodbye. And he looks at me, and he says, "My whole name." He's like, "Goodbye, Mr. Freddie. I will miss you." And I like cried right then, and <laughs> I couldn't even continue with the. I'm like sitting here comping a piano chord. I'm like, I can't sing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to sing right now but this was such a great moment and the teachers had to like stop and get me some tissues because I looked a mess um so it's great seeing it in those moments because it was like he in the time that I was able to work with him like he built up his confidence to be able to speak and say words and feel confident in in it um so I've seen it work in that way I've also worked in mental health and seen it as a way of really being able to express you know, some of the things we have going on for ourselves in our everyday lives, because mental health is a thing for everyone in some capacity, no matter how big or how small. And sometimes music is used as escapism, which is fine. Like sometimes you need it to, to not think about 
what's going on or and sometimes it's used to like really dig into what's going on and find a way to talk about that in a way that feels safe so i've seen it music work in a bunch of different forms and capacities and right now i'm using i work at a um, domestic violence sexual assault center right now and so i work specifically with queer survivors of a partner violence sexual assault and i have folks that i see in individual sessions there where like music is really used as a way of like confronting some some traumas that aren't necessarily allowed to be talked about in normal society like we deem them as being taboo subjects and so we don't talk about them and it builds up all this this trauma because it's like well i have this going on and no one wants to hear it or i feel like it's too much of a burden to bring on somebody um and music has really been great in there for like songwriting or for mm -hmm. listening and doing lyric analysis and saying this relates to me in this way that's awesome thank you guys those are all great things that you're doing um and and why we asked you to yes. help us with this specific episode yeah. because uh, of course <laughs> there's a lot of music in it it's a little overwhelming what are your memories of it like what are your reactions so digging in it from a musical background now like with the music knowledge that i have gained over my years it's so interesting to think about fantasia because so when you're in school for music like you're required to take music history like for us it was like three three classes worth of musical history and so within that you learn about the different genres like subgenres of classical music because i think everyone can know like oh this is classical music but when you actually break down into the genres of like early romantic music or 20th century music like no like unless you have that training or that knowledge or real interest in that music in particular like you you're not really sure how those things break down and so Fantasia for me I feel like does this really great job of taking taking the, the pieces that it chose that were that were chosen for the for the the movie and conveying them in a way that very much aligns with what the romantic period of music was. So the romantic period of music was the like the 19th century, so like 1800s to 1900s. And like the whole point of that era of music was to be very evocative and very imagery driven. And so like when you think of pieces like uh, Claude Debussy, like Claire de Lune, like when you hear that music, it creates images for you. Like you are able to project your own like conscious thoughts onto that and it creates things for you. And so what Fantasia almost did was it said, well, let's kind of do that for the audience. So let's take these pieces and we'll create images for them and create these new associations. So for example, if we look at um, like the Rite of Spring, I'm trying to remember what that scene is in the and the dinosaurs, it's, dinosaurs. yeah it's, it's like the birth of the birth of man and, and the thing um it's interesting because how the rite of spring came to be like it was it was this ritualistic dance to sacrifice a, a little girl <laughs> when when you look at it so like yeah we read it, about that yeah and so uh stravinsky composed this piece and it's part of it like it was music and a ballet and the part of this, it was like the ritual of spring. And so it was like, we sacrificed this, this young virgin woman to help bring about spring. And when it was performed, like people rioted, <laughs> like people legit rioted, left the theater and everything. 
um, because it was so off brand for what music had been at the time. It was like, what is, what is this? So it's like when people think of Lady Gaga, like we think of Lady Gaga as like the pop queen who, wore, who wears meat and like these very over elaborate extravagant outfits. And then when she flipped the script on you and joined up with Tony Bennett and started singing jazz, everyone I mean, stopped did, like, for a minute. A country album too, right? Yeah. Right, like everyone yeah. stopped for a minute and said, huh? Like who, who was this? They didn't riot, maybe they did, I don't know. But it that drastic, that stark difference in contrast mm-hmm. was really like jarring for a lot of people. And so it's funny for Fantasia to take to, I don't know if the, I, I assume that they knew what the original story was and to kind of change and alter it in a way that's more family friendly because it still has the same concepts of like new beginnings and new things, but they took it and said, okay, we'll make it about like the, the start of like human birth and, and dinosaurs and like the beginning of what earth is like that. That is super helpful. And I feel like I wish we'd had this conversation before I had watched Fantasia because I think I would appreciate a lot more of it. Another interesting perspective about the Rite of Spring is that it falls into this classification of art called primitivism. And um, one of the reasons that it was so poorly received um, is that the music itself and the dancing um, was meant to evoke a very prehistoric, pre-societal movement and sound. So uh, it's very percussive. It's very dissonant. It's, um, it relies a lot on irregularity in ways that the beautiful music of the classical era, which is right before, the, like, right before this all happened, about 100 years before this, where everything was very symmetrical and predictable. And so the movement in the Rite of Spring as a ballet was very jagged and very violent and aggressive. And um, so thinking back to this idea of primitivism, when they use dinosaurs, it makes perfect sense because they're evoking the sounds of early humanity or early life. Um, and that's, that was the intention of Stravinsky when he wrote it. Even the first movement, like in that, that piece, is, is labeled like the adoration of Earth. Oh, I feel like I need to listen to more classical music <laughs> and read about it. Yeah, it's funny. We, um, this is a plug. Well, it's not a real plug. It's more of a shout out to our Music History 3 teacher. She was wonderful. Miss... Um, Oh my God. Dr. Schulstad. There we go, Schulstad. Reeves, Reeves Schulstad. Like the, I think I liked her music history the cla- class the most out of the three we took because hers, while there was a focus on like really understanding the music, there was a lot behind understanding like socially what was happening during the time these pieces came about and what was society doing. So it's this big sociological piece to the music as well. So you, it, I think it helped me better understand some of this music a lot more and really get a better grasp on it so like i'll never forget the riot of spring because i know when it premiered like in 1913 people rioted and like (laughs) were not pleased because Mm -hmm. of how jarring and how different it was from the music of that time yeah i was completely surprised by it like i was reading up on just fantasia and there's some something that i read made some like kind of throwaway statement of just about like you know and up until that point, the not super popular Rite of Spring, or it had like a negative. Controversial. Controversial, yeah. Controversial yeah. Rite of Spring. And I was like, wait, why was it controversial? And I clicked on it and I went down the rabbit hole of like the virgin dancing until she dies. And I was like, yeah, that would be a little controversial for a ballet. Well, you, what's interesting is Fantasia, you know, it's a kid's movie. And so this piece, so what, what I think people forget about a piece like the Rite of Spring 
is that this was revolutionary, truly, in the era that it was written. Like just how dissonant and gross and like atonal it was and how unpredictable and irregular the music was, was unheard of at that time. It was not done publicly, especially not as a ballet. So um, for it to be given to children to, to watch and consume, um, very much so normalized it. And in fact, that throughout all of the 20th century, you get very dissonant music now. And so as modern listeners in the 21st century, like we don't really mind it. It's just like, oh, it's kind of a neat, intense piece. But back then it was very assaulting. Like it was very um, out of the norm. So it's cute that we show kids and go, oh, look, enjoy the kids movie with this really crazy music in it. I was going to say, I think it also did a lot for dance too, because I think maybe, and I'm not a dance aficionado in terms of my history, but I think this may have been one of the first times for ballets when you saw movement that was very like angular and very not like when we think ballets, we think like Swan Lake and these nice beautiful lines and extensions and like the, these beautiful shapes that get made. Whereas this was not that it was like, you jump up and down. It's very angular. It's very avant-garde. It's um, so I think it was also a huge thing, like, because I think another big musically, it was very controversial. And I think visually too, to have been an audience member to just see this happen in a ballet where you're like, this is not my expectation of what a ballet is supposed to look like, much less sound, sound like, I think was also a huge step forward for dance as well. Yeah. <laughs> for our yeah. listeners, there's some really cute dogs that live yeah. with Freddie and Alex and they yeah. keep popping up on screen and making us laugh. Um, very cute. Um, um, I was looking at like, um, not experts at all's like reaction to Fantasia and some people on the internet are just like annoyed with how long what's the man's name Deems Taylor um how long his like introductions to every piece last to me they reminded me of being at a high school band concert when the director gets off and is like this is what you're about to hear which in my head was just like trying to educate the public on like like this is a form of like literature in our world and this is a story and this is what hopefully you'll pick up on, which is kind of what you guys have been describing. Um, And so, I mean, a lot of the explanation is literally like, and then you're going to see dinosaurs get bigger and then they're going in it. It tells you exactly what like the plot line of the shorts will be. But for me, it didn't seem that strange. Like it it reminded me of being at any other band concert um, where they're just preparing you for it. So I don't know if you think that function is worthwhile or should people be we trust them to interpret um music on their own or is it like is it the music experts job to help people work through um the different movements so what's interesting is that a lot of the music in fantasia is what we refer to as program music so there are two distinct types of of music throughout music history one is called absolute music and that's music for music's sake so it doesn't necessarily tell a story it doesn't depict anything so um, like a Bach chorale or, you know, a string quartet, you know, in the early classical era or Baroque era, like they don't necessarily mean anything. So how you interpret it or how you feel about it is completely up to you, sure. But a lot of the music in this movie is called program music, which is the opposite of that, in which its intention is to depict something or tell a story or represent literature. And the reason it's called program music is because you would have to read the program to understand what it was about. And so really any of these descriptions 
from the narrator are just kind of externalizing what would normally happen in a classical music concert in which the descriptions of what the music was depicting would be in the program. And so all he's doing is just externalizing that. So that's truly, maybe besides Toccata and Fugue, um, aside from that, like, he's just doing another form of programming. He's, he's giving you context for what you're about to hear. And that would happen in any classical music concert. As a watcher of it, I will say, and even being a band person and being in concerts when you learn about the pieces, I find myself tuned out mm-hmm. when he's speaking. And I think a lot of that just goes back to expectation. Like when people go to watch movies, they don't necessarily go to movies to, to be told things like they're being read off a piece of paper or mm-hmm. that it, it feels, if it feels educational in the least bit. Um, I think when people watch movies, depending on the type of movies you watch, there's an, there's an aspect of escapism and an aspect of being able to let your imagination kind of go and, and not have to so much be told what's going to happen. You'd rather see it be happen, which is why I think when we see like psychological thrillers and things like that, where it's like, you don't figure it out. Like you're sitting there trying to figure it out until the very end and it all connects back and like, oh, that's what that was. I think for me, being a viewer of movies in that realm, it's like, I'm just like, just let me listen. Like, let me, let me live my fantasy. Like, let me feel my oats and experience it the way that I would like to experience it. Um, so that's how I, that's how I kind of take it when I, when that part happens, I do tune it out. <laughs> well, they did cut out a lot of his stuff in the, um, like, re-releases. Oh, really? I think, I think A Plus is the full one, because the studio, when they, when the Disney first gave them the full copy, and they were like, we can't release this over two-hour-long movie. Like, that's just not a thing that happens um, in 1940. Um, and so Walt Disney was like, well, I'm not going to cut it. Somebody else needs to cut it. Like, I re- he was just, like, so attached to all of it together. Um, but yeah, eventually they cut it out. <laughs> I think it'd be hard. Um, I think like when you're like, when I preach a sermon, it is when somebody comes back and gives me feedback of like, that made me think of this. You're like, that was not what I was trying to make you think about, you know? And so there's like a little bit of of control. Um, And so the, the conductor or the narrator gets to say like, this is the intention behind this piece. And so, you know, when you're listening to it, like, I like some instruction because I feel like that doesn't come naturally to me. Like, I liked in Fantasia when the very first one, you know, first it's just showing kind of the shadow of the orchestra and then it slowly turns into a cartoon a little bit, but but you see these moving images, but really they're the bow strings or the bows or whatever they're called for the stringed instruments. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's funny that you say that about like your sermons when people come to you and say, well, I got this out of it. It's like, that's not what I intended at all. But great that you got, it's very similar to music therapy in a way. So like Mm -hmm. when I bring in songs or I bring in music that I share with groups or with individuals and like I have an idea of why I'm sharing it and I have my own interpretation of it, but then their interpretation of it is so different. I think that's what makes it beautiful is that it's not the same thing for everyone. It's going to be different. And so um, letting people being able to experience that and project, because that's what it is. It's a projection. It's like a projection of their experiences onto the music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for something like Fantasia, not to say that they shouldn't have done like the programmatic piece in between the, the movements. I think there's, 
I think that's very good education in terms of like, this is how it works, like in a classical setting. And also I feel that like the images, like they have the images in there already. So the images kind of do the work for you. You don't necessarily have to do the extra work of also putting words to it too. Like sometimes words get in the way. And so it's better to just let the images and the music do the work and then let people take away from it what they want to take take away from it. Because then I feel like it makes it more meaningful for them, for you as an individual, because it it's no longer this thing that was just shown to you and you receive. It's like this thing that you, that your conscious and unconscious collaborated with to make this new thing that has a meaning for you. So it's almost like it's, you have more of an ownership over it. Do you think like all of these pieces for Fantasia are all orchestral? Do you think that they could have accomplished the same thing if they snuck in some choral pieces? So I think it's hard to kind of say whether you could accomplish the same thing. I think it would be interesting because it would be interesting to see what would come out of it and how it would be received, especially some of these, um, some of these works. Like I'm thinking about what if Toccata Fugue was done in like an acapella type style <laughs> with just voice. Like it would be very interesting to hear and see how that was received. I definitely think the, the emotion would be different. I think there would be some definitely emotive differences. Well, I think what's interesting too is that choral music is very literal. And so in that you have to kind of figure out the meaning, even of program music, you have to kind of deduce what it's supposed to represent. Choral music is telling you something and there's text. Mm -hmm. And so, um, for example, like both Night on Bald Mountain, The Rite of Spring, um, Pastoral Symphony, like these are pieces that had specific images in mind, but they were refit to tell new stories. Whereas in choral music, it'd be interesting if they tried to score choral music with um, animated stories, would they be the same story? Or are you going to have choral music telling one story with the animation telling another, in which case that's that's a little confusing. Unless it's in a different language, you can't understand it, Mm -hmm. right? I think people are going to be focusing on the text of choral music in a way that they're not for instrumental music. And so I think you'd have to approach the animation of it very differently. Yeah, they there's like a list of discarded numbers they started to work on but didn't complete. Um, and one of them was the Song of the Flea, which is an opera piece. Um, it's Italian maybe, but the English translation of it is a story about a king who has a pet flea and he asks a tailor to make a velvet robe for him. And he gives them like Medal of Honor and stuff. That's happening right now, right? Like, it feels like... <laughs> This is an analogy for Fantasia 2020. (laughs) I'm here for it. (laughs) I mean, we're overdue for a new one. (laughs) (sighs) Sorry. Uh, No, but I was just like, that, if this happened, like, because they had a vocalist lined up to do the vocals for it. And so it was unclear if they'd be doing the translated version or the original language version. But I was like, if this is translated, I'm going to be really distracted. Um, <laughs> like whatever they Especially if it's not like the image of this like plea like trying on <laughs> yeah. yeah I'd be curious if they would you know animate it literally in that way like if they right. if they put it in English like would it be that literal story because if they kept it in Italian if they took any music that was a different language they could just use kind of like some of the more you know pitch related meanings of things 
and they wouldn't have to be literal. So it's interesting. Mm -hmm. I also read that some of the animators were known for, they would request the sheet music when they were animating a scene and they used like the physical notes movement as inspiration for how their character moved around. Hmm. I guess, I mean, it worked for them. I was like, that's, that's a really- brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, like- you uh, you Like, you know, what kind of like movement is happening, especially like in the Nutcracker and stuff um, with mm -hmm. mushrooms that are going up and down and- yeah, that makes sense. I mean, when you think about um, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, like I think that was what came to mind. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that image, that animation in general, does a very good job of sort of emphasizing and accenting what the music's doing. So even the beginning, the beginning of that, um, well, I guess it's really a little bit after the beginning, with the the brooms start coming to life, and you get the you get the bassoon, the bassoon slowly that's happening, the boom, boom. And it's like the brooms marching and how that really like kind of accents that. And it's really interesting with that piece because the Sorcerer's Apprentice by uh, Paul Dukas, Dukas, mm -hmm. don't know how to say his last name. Like it was not written for Fantasia. It just matched up. Like it was originally like a poem entitled yeah. The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And then they took it and adapted it to make it work for Fantasia, which I did not know until I looked it up, because I, I, like, I always thought, like, that, if anything, that always felt like the one piece from Fantasia that felt like it was maybe made for Fantasia, but it was not. This was very helpful. So helpful. I, yeah, I have much deeper appreciation for the movie now. I really appreciate it. And thanks for all the work that y'all are doing in the music world, of course. Um, educating kids and helping people through trauma. I really think if it wasn't for band, I would be a totally different person. And I do not want to know. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to know that person. <laughs> so we forgot one of our questions. <laughs> so we were going to share our favorite slash funniest um, band memories. Or musical memory. Music education memories. Yes. So I can go first because I already don't mind. So in middle school, we, I li we lived in Cuba um, when I was in middle school. Natalie was like a wee babe. Um, but the military base's school was really small, so we had a very small band. I played flute, and we played, we played the Nutcracker, in it, but it was like one piece of, one page of music. And they had shoved all of the Nutcracker into one page. Um, I don't think it was the best written piece, or arranged piece. But um, I played the flute and the triangle <laughs> so that's a, a necessary instrument <laughs> well so it was the part where it was the da 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 so i'd play that part of my flute da, 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 and i'd throw my flute down and pick up the triangle to go ding 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 at the end of every line <laughs> that's perfect yeah <laughs> literally like, throws flute down <laughs> i know i was like i think that made more noise like my my stressed out like, gotta finish this musical line on my flute and get this triangle in time. Um, that that was probably made more noise and was more distracting than if they just had not had the triangle at all. So that I think was, it was necessary. Well, or like, don't have me play flute. Like, just have me play uh, the triangle. <laughs> I mean. Um, that reminds me that if any part of this movie reminded me of being in band, especially high school band, is at some point, I don't know why this happens, but at some point the MC is talking and then the chimes just come tumbling down. 
like you just hear this clamor yeah. and then they turn and like they're picking the chimes back up and like it's not really addressed at all and I was like was this <laughs> to be a funny stunt or did this that, that was my question with a professional um because yeah. we I were... can imagine if we did that um, oh my gosh we'd get in so much trouble yeah I have I have mine if, if Natalie's not gonna go well Alex you're famous was... right Alex there's a meme yeah so in my last when I student taught, I played French horn when I wasn't conducting. And it was the final concert of my student conducting semester. And I took a, this picture with all like the high school horn players that I conducted and I played with. And whoever took the picture said, make a funny face. And so I did. And I guess someone like just cropped the picture of me making this weird face and put it on Facebook. And then of course everyone ran with it and made it a meme. And now it's all over Pinterest and it's all over the internet. And I've met people who have seen the meme before they've met me. So <laughs> it's okay? been an experience. Are huh? you okay to share it as part of like our promo? Oh, for this feel free, feel free <laughs> to share it. It's public domain at this point. You don't have to ask permission. <laughs> right. It is, it is wildfired across the internet. So whatever. <laughs> I think homecoming for me is my funniest. Being crowned queen and then ripping. Well, not. We'll see. That's a good one. When I went homecoming king and under my suit to be crowned, I had the girls' tennis team outfit. And they like mistakenly named you the queen before they fixed it. Did they really? I totally missed that. She she, she was, was like, like, this year's homecoming queen is Alex Alberti. And I was like, okay. And so I just <laughs> took it. But um, yeah, so like the band started marching on the field and I was still taking pictures. And so I stripped off all of my clothes in front of the whole student body, and there was a sports bra miniskirt, and I sure marched that show. Because our high school, <laughs> all the sections would um, be in costume for homecoming. For homecoming game. Um, in middle school, the class that I was in, we went through four band teachers in three years. Um, what did y'all do <laughs> to make that happen? Our eighth grade year, uh, I played trombone in middle school, and um, two of my friends took private lessons outside of school. And so our teacher would just occasionally get too overwhelmed by how many issues we had. And so she would send the trombone section into the instrument storage room and put Drew and Derek, who were taking private lessons, in charge of us for like the 45-minute class period and would just say, like, practice these measures. Um, but we would take our chairs in and the chairs had the tennis balls in the bottom of them. And so me and my friend Amber were the only girls in this group. Um, and so all of the guys, their instinct was just to pelt each other with tennis balls for the 45 minute session while Amber and I would climb into the tuba lockers and just like lock ourselves in and hide. Um, and would come out and get us and be like, trombones, like how was your practice session? <laughs> and we would be like, yeah, it was great. That's great. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to tell on my friends, but also, you're. This is the most ridiculous idea you've had. It's to dress like eight middle schoolers together to teach each other trombone. Um, chaos. Yeah. Um, the story that keeps coming to my mind is like this one concert we had at at Jordan High School, and we weren't even on the stage playing. I think we were waiting to perform as like the wind ensemble. And the Wiz was performing and someone showed up to the concert late. And you just see 
You just see the mid-piece just walk on to the stage. <laughs> it was a clarinet player, which means they were on full display. But <laughs> I think I remember that. So to the stage. And I think it was a female. And yeah. she just walked on stage. And I think I think she still had her case in hand. I think she took out the instrument on the stage and put it together and then proceeded to play as if nothing had happened. And I just remember sitting there like, oh. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for this. Yeah, no problem. It was fun. Thank you. It was fun. Bye. Bye. So I would say um, even if you haven't seen Fantasia or like me before yesterday, it had been 20 years at least since you'd seen it, um, very likely that you would recognize The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Um, at least you'd recognize Mickey in The Sorcerer's Hat. Yeah. And I didn't do research on like, why is, why is that so iconic? For Mickey like why does that become like the image of Mickey for a long time yeah I mean it was the first full film that he was in I mean he wasn't a main character in the fullness right. of the film but it was the first time he was in like yeah. in theater and not a short yeah yeah um, although they keep referring to these little like episodes as shorts in the movie and they felt anything but short. Yeah, <laughs> they were, I would call them longs mm -hmm. or never endings. Um, For the background of Sorcerer's Apprentice being in Fantasia, originally the Sorcerer's Apprentice was going to be on its own. Um, like a, a whole movie or like a short? No, I think it was going to be a short. It was going to be a part of... Um, like the Disney symphony, the silly, silly symphony series oh, yeah. going on. Um, but Walt Disney just kept upping and upping, upping the budget on this short. Um, and so I think eventually the studio suggested that it turns into um, a full length film because at this point it's not the profit margin is not worthwhile for it to be released as a silly symphony for how much they were spending oh, yeah. on the production of it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, would you like to hear some background behind the story yes. of The Sorcerer's Apprentice? Yes. Okay. First of all, I'm thinking about this now. It's just now coming to me. Um, but didn't in the in Fantasia doesn't the um, like the host, the master of ceremonies, Deems Taylor, who I did research. Um, didn't he say that the story is like 2,000 years old? Yeah. I was confused by that because then when I did the research, it's based off a poem that was written in 1797. Did he mean 200? Maybe. Even that's not 200. Maybe he meant 200. Written in 1797 by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. So it's based on this poem. The poem is a ballad and it has 14 stanzas. I would like to read 12 of them. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Your face you made just now is very similar to the faces you were making and sending to me while watching Fantasia last night. Please tell me they're couplets. They're, no. Okay. 
but it's very similar to what we see in Fantasia. The old sorcerer leaves his shop and um, the, his apprentice is tired of filling up this big like, well thing, I guess. Um, and he makes his broom come to life and then um, he can't stop the broom because he doesn't have, this, this says he doesn't have the magic to do it. Um, which we do see a little bit of that. Like he can't, he keeps like putting his hands up to get him to stop. Um, and then he cuts the broom in half with an ax. And then those pieces become brooms, which we do see. Um, so then the room fills up with water and um, the old sorcerer returns and breaks the spell. And the poem concludes with the old sorcerer's statement that only a master should invoke powerful spirits, which seems like a good moral. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I probably shouldn't invoke spirits because I have not been trained in yeah. in those arts. So one thing, so this story is very well known in the German speaking world. Um, but it says this on the Wikipedia page says that um the lines in which the apprentice implores the returning sorcerer to help him with the mess he created has turned into a cliche in German. Um, and so it's the spirits that I called is what I guess that the apprentice as the sorcerer, it's, it's a cliche that's used to describe someone who summons help or allies that the individual cannot control, especially in politics. So it is a political cliche. Yeah. yeah. Um, so do you know the name of the sorcerer? Um, uh, Yes, 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 it. That's close. Yes, yes, said. Yen Sid. Mm hmm, that's how. <laughs> <laughs> because that is Disney backwards. Disney backwards. What wow. if they Walt instead? Twall. Twall. <laughs> um, going back to the 2000 year old story thing, mm -hmm. um, I did look it up, and he does say it's a legend that's 2000 years old. Um, but I was kind of half paying attention when that intro was happening and so all I heard was this is a story about 2,000 years old and my brain the way it's conditioned just went Jesus, Jesus. and then because I was like I know what's about to happen I don't think at all this is a story of Jesus but maybe I completely missed that uh, motif as a child <laughs> loosely based on Jesus's life based um so I have a few notes on the um creation of Fantasia as a movie. Let's hear them. So Disney was very enthusiastic about this movie. Walt Disney, it sounds like, did not consider himself to be particularly musically inclined. So um, he was quoted to say that he hoped that Fantasia would bring classical music to people like him, himself, um, who had previously, quote, walked out on this kind of stuff. I did wonder, like, how many people had March of the Penguin Dad like moments when they <laughs> realized like this entire movie is just this guy talking to me and then showing me weird cartoons. Yeah. The narrator or the host or whatever says, this is a new form of entertainment. And so I wonder if that like they marketed it, 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 it that way. Yeah. Um, there were a few things I found that Walt Disney wanted to be included in the um, production that did not end up happening. Um, but honestly, if they had happened, like, I'm very curious to know where we'd be right now. Um, 
for the Toccata and Fugue, um, Disney originally had plans to create an experimental 3D film. And so audience would be given cardboard stereoscopic frames with their, with their programs, but the idea was abandoned. Um, his other idea, which I like this idea, and I've seen it happen. Well, this was big with Nickelodeon. Is it Smell-O-Vision? And maybe, yeah, maybe Disney yeah. Channel when I was part of like a cereal box or something before like a big Friday night premiere, you could send off for a little card they would mail you for like the new Hair Arnold episode. And little numbers would pop up throughout the episode and you'd scratch and sniff. So I haven't really said yet what his idea was. I just realized um, we're kind of just like on the same. Smell-O-Vision. But specifically, can you guess where he wanted smells to happen? Um, the Nutcracker Suite had a lot of like flowers and stuff. Gross smells of animals? No. Um, during Ave Maria, he wanted incense smells to go throughout the theater. We talked about the um, controversy of Rite of Spring, um, and and I did think about this. Um, Disney did stop themselves from being a little more controversial than they could have been. So that's the one that depicts um, the story of evolution, mm-hmm. uh, and they made the decision to not include humanity. I thought this was cool. They also, for that, um, the animators spent a lot of time um, with popular scientists, um, like the director of the American Museum of Natural History, um, Edwin Hubble, Hmm. um, some paleontologists and biologists that I don't know. Um, Ross Geller. Ross Geller. Um, They studied comets at the Mount Wilson Observatory. And they observed a herd of iguanas and a baby alligator that were brought into the studio. And they would put the camera at a low position to heighten them to become dinosaurs for inspiration for the animation. That's kind of adorable. Yeah, I wish there was some... Like, I would like to see that footage. Yeah, recovered footage of that. Well, do you have a favorite movement? Yeah. Favorite piece? What's your favorite piece? Uh, it's the Nutcracker Suite. Do you have a favorite piece? Yeah. It was the dance of the hours. Why do you like that one so much? I don't know. I just liked the characters a lot in that, and it didn't go super dark. It was the, it was the cutest, I think, of all of them. Yeah. I have mixed feelings about that one because when I was in ballet class, um, oh, here. I, what? Nothing. I was told that I had ostrich legs. Um, what does that even mean? You're you're short. Right. That my like thighs were bigger than my calves. Aren't everybody's legs like that? <laughs> I don't know, but this like I everybody's was, legs are definitely like that unless you like are a body built. No, I don't know. I think like like I don't. I think I was like four in that ballet class. And somebody was body shaming you for your ostrich legs? Yeah, another little girl was. A girl said you had ostrich legs? Yes! A cl- like a classmate. Wow. And so every time I watch it, I have these like flashbacks to four-year-old ballet class and my ostrich legs. And then watching it and going, that must be what I look like. So, yeah, I just have just mixed yeah, reactions to it. So speaking of body shaming. Um... In my notes, as I watched it, I responded to, like, all of the animals. Um, 
I did write when the hippos were going on. This is kind of adorable. Yeah. Um, I said, I feel like this hippo is me every day during quarantine. I work for a little bit and then I'm exhausted and I feel like I need a nap in the middle of the day. So for both Snow White and Pinocchio, I've touched on the rotoscoping that happens with the animation, which is when they use real life figures to help them draw things. Um, So rotoscoping happens in this movie. Um, The elephant? I think it happens for most of the animals. and a lot of them are like just they would bring in actual famous ballerinas to come in and oh, I thought they were ostriches. <laughs> I thought this whole time we were talking about ostriches. Oh God, no. <laughs> um, no, but that's cool. So they brought in ballerinas and then turned them into ostriches. Yeah, I wonder how they felt about their ostrich legs. If you would let me get, you just keep on segueing to my point. Um, (laughs) Sorry. So um, the hippo has three different models they created the hippo from. One of them is Marge Champion because I forgot that she's also a dancer because she does everything. Um, So Marge Champion is one of the people um, who were, who was an inspiration for the hippo ballerina, whose name is Hyacinth Hippo by the way. Um, and the second person was like a Russian ballerina. Uh-huh. Um, he would have been like, I guess, popular at the time if you knew ballet. And the third person is Hattie Noel. Um, Hattie Noel is not a ballerina. Um, she was the person who inspired the more hippo part of the hippo Aww. image. Um, so they actually like when they do these things, like they take pictures of the models, but it was like, it was obviously in the contract and Disney followed it very well of like these images stay in the studio. Like they're only for the animators. They will not be a part of any press release. And so like these images were rediscovered like 10 years ago or something. And it's like now they're available to the public and she's often not cited as um, one of the models. Um, Where did they find her? So she was born, okay, so there's not a lot about her, but there's a decent amount. So she's also um, a black woman from Louisiana who was born in 1893. Um, The same, like, she actually was one of, she auditioned against the other Hattie who was- Oh yeah, from Gone with the Wind. Yeah, Yeah. she was almost um, in Gone with the Wind. Uh, She's in that like generation. And she entered show business when she was like 13 and ran away to join a carnival. Um, She wanted to perform from an early age. Um, She was on like a few vaudeville shows. And then in 1939, she was hired by Walt Disney Productions to film live action reference um, for the animators for the Dance of the Hours sequence. Um, And she was asked to portray a hippopotamus ballerina um, and the animator who was in charge of the hippos, his name is T. He, which is not his given name, so I don't know why he did this. Uh, <laughs> so bad. But T. He was his name. Um, and he was also apparently known for not being like the most in shape man. Um, 
And so they interviewed him later about the process. And he said that she was initially very self-conscious about how the footage would be used and about whether or not it was being done in mockery. Um, and he said that he, at the time, um, felt that he could sympathize with those feelings um, and assured her that the footage would only be used um, to aid the artists. Um, but then for solidarity, <laughs> which I don't know if this would be funny or uncomfortable, um, the story goes that T, he, Mr. Um, he, Mr. He, uh, peeled down to his shorts and in his words, danced with all my bulk in front of the camera to show that I was all, that it was all in a light spirit. Okay, I don't need that. Like, yeah. I would be like, dude, I'm good. <laughs> you just made it worse. Just, um, yeah. Helping or hurting, Teehee, helping or hurting. Yeah. Um, and so there's a book by Mindy Aloff who, um, has some kind of dance background and so the whole book is about dance and disney animation um but it's called hippo in a tutu and the cover of it is actually um the hippo um and so a good portion of it is her talking about no um patty noel's story so this is a quote from her book it's worth it's worth remembering that as a professional noel completed her assignment with honor she brought more to the character than what the scholar elizabeth bell has called prosaic strokes of cartoon corporeality she brought her spirit, the femininity, humor, and deep feelings that animated the flesh the animators analyzed. These elements bespoke many experiences that the teenage Marge, Chap Marge Chapman, Marge Champion, would have been too young to offer, and the ballerina Tatiana Ryabushinska would have been too emotionally armored to reveal. They gave themselves to the dancing of Hyacinth Hippo, but not to her trademark vulnerability. They yeah. That came from Patty Noel, and she lives forever as one of the muses for the hippo and a tutu. I kind of like that. Yeah, I like that quote a lot. Yeah. Um, after Fantasia, she went on to be in 18 films. Um, unfortunately, it was in the 40s and 50s, and so she was often casted as, like, the maid of the house. Yeah. Um, she did do music stuff with Louis Armstrong and jazz pianist Billy Mitchell. Um, and toward the end of her career, she released several solo records. So there's not a lot about her on the internet. And I know there's definitely like some questions that should be raised about the process of this and how you, how you hire somebody to say like, you're going to be the model for hippopotamus. Um, I've often wondered that though, with like, like, yeah. with, like fat jokes in movies. Yeah. Of, like, you know, all right, here's a script. We're going to make fun of your size. Yeah. Fantasia itself is not really interesting to me, but I feel like there's probably other like interesting little like snippets of background of people who are involved in creating Fantasia. And so that's my history. Did you notice how many women were in the orchestra? Uh, like two, and they had to sit in the back where women belong. The two harder. Also, because they played harp. <laughs> yeah. You talked about him calling it a new form of entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he like goes on and on about like what you're about to experience. Like you're going to be like, first you'll like see nothing. And then like your consciousness will like set it. Yeah. Just weird stuff. And so I wrote, should I be filling out a release form before watching this? Which is my thought if I were in the theater for it. Right. The buildup of it also reminded me of what I imagine it's like to go to the Shen Yun shows. <laughs> yes. Okay. I wrote one thing Disney does well. Mm -hmm. Baby Pegasus is. Oh yeah, they were cute. They were really also cute. there's also a really cute baby Pegasus and Hercules. Oh, this was really weird. I don't know if you caught this, but when 
it starts to rain and they're all fleeing. One of the centaurettes, they're all like jumping over this hedge and one of the centaurettes is carrying a stick and she hits her horse part, but her horse butt to get over, to get to jump over the hedge. And I was like, does this suggest the centaurs don't have control over their horse parts? Like, oh, that's funny. Okay, it's just kind of weird. Yeah. What? We call that a gag in the film industry. <laughs> Someone made $5 off of that. Got it. Um, it was a weird gag. Um, okay. And then the last one is The Night on Bald Mountain and Ave Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote, this music is perfect for Satan. <laughs> um, going back to the Sorcerer's Apprentice scene, I wrote... I will be interested to see Natalie's scary score. Mm. Is that what it's called? Yes. What is that what it's called? Scary scary score? Scary scale? Scary scale. I only gave us a six. I didn't think it was that scary. I mean, no. compared to Pinocchio and Snow White. And Snow White. I think it's more of a um, like a psychological scare of of these like splintered <laughs> uh, brooms coming back to life and like drowning. That's scary. Satan was scary too. Yeah. Well, I also think um, like I'm doing the scary scale because I was a very scared child. It's true. Um, and so I think perhaps like. I didn't see these movies because mom never like even brought them to my attention because she knew that some of these movies would not go over well with my brain. And so the scary scale in my head is meant for like, if, if Natalie, like the eight year old watched this, like what scares would affect her. Whereas I do think like the disturbing nature of Fantasia is for the most part, things like that the adults would pick up on more than kids would. That makes sense. Yeah. Like, Like, I think the scariest part would be the Bald Mountain part. Um, Oh, yeah. Even that, like, the MC tells you what's about to happen. (laughs) That's nice. That's true. Uh, (laughs) It is true. Yeah. Um, So we started last week to um, rank our movies, which one's our favorite. Oh, God. Between Snow White, White, Pinocchio, and Fantasia, uh, Pinocchio is still still reigning. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So, next week is um, The Reluctant Dragon, right? Yes. Okay. I can never remember what the adjective is. Um, And it is a pretty obscure Disney movie. Um, so we would recommend that if you have access to Disney plus or a friend who has access to Disney plus to check it out, it's, I've seen it already. Natalie hasn't. Um, and it's, it's pretty interesting. It's weird. It's definitely weird. Um, but you get some behind the scenes looks into what goes into, um, making these Disney movies. So that was neat. Um, the sources I used this week for a lot of my research, which was mostly for Hattie Noel, um, was fandom, the Disney elite, Wikipedia, and Cartoon Brew. I did not do a lot of research for this week. Um, 
mainly Wikipedia. All of it was actually Wikipedia. We also would like to say thank you again to our friends, Freddie and Alex, who yes. gave us amazing information, um, made music fun, um, <laughs> and they're both doing really great work. Yes, thanks guys for, for doing all that hard work. Yes. Um, if anything we said in this podcast episode is just incorrect or you would like to fight us on an opinion. Um, with your words. With your words or music. Um, compose an angry argument through music for us. Email us at wolfdisneypodcast at gmail.com. That's wolf with no E, W-O-L-F, Disney podcast at gmail.com and follow us on twitter and instagram and facebook all of the social medias we're on social media now yay we'll see you next week for the reluctant dragon you'll hear us next week for the reluctant dragon we'll hear you you'll <laughs> we'll talk to you next week for the reluctant dragon your ears will pick up some part of our talking um shout out to our listeners in poland Argentina and the Philippines. Yes. Thank you for listening. And western part of the United States, what's your deal? Nothing past Texas. This has been Wolf Disney. Thanks for listening. Our theme song is Lamb and Wolf by Poddington Bear. See you next week. Mm-hmm.